Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a really unique and special day. My guest is Michael Simka, a guy who has created a genre that is very, very rare, where he takes non-English language films and adapts them to American audiences with his incredible knack for rewriting dialogue and editing It's a real special skill set, and the other things he's doing are incredibly extraordinary as well, which you're about to find out. But before we get started, I just want to thank you all so much again. I'll never stop saying it. I'm so grateful for everything that you guys do. You're so supportive, and you really help make this show what it is today. And without you, again, sincerely, this show is nothing. Thanks again so much. And as you know, I like to do, I like to start off my shows with a cold open. I look at my guest, I never know what I'm going to say. And when I think of Michael Simka, I think of a guy who really was truly a pioneer in what he was doing. But when it started out, and when he didn't know what he was going to do, he just was inspired by animation and Walt Disney. He still needed to find his way. He needed to find a niche. And instead of just simply following the curve and doing the ordinary and doing what everybody else does or creating formulas that everybody else was doing, Michael went the opposite way. He took the other fork in the road and he figured out a way to create a business that really wasn't being done, which was taking animated films from foreign countries and making them for this country, reworking them, 
restructuring them, rewriting them, revoicing them, bringing in different celebrities. And he created a real business for himself to where Lionsgate was hugely involved and very excited about it and did multiple, multiple, multiple films. And again, just analyzed the marketplace, took a look at what was there, what wasn't there, and figured out what could he do to make an impact in a way where there was nobody else really doing it. And he created this niche, and he worked on this niche, and he was successful in this niche, and throughout that process created great relationships with all these celebrities who were coming in and voicing and helping to work with him to rewrite and write and create different scenarios for these characters within these films. And the talent loved him. The producers who work with him loved him. His staff loved him. Lionsgate loved him. All because he was a visionary. And he saw an opening in an area of the entertainment business that wasn't being utilized, wasn't being fulfilled. And then he did it. And he did it not once, not twice, but 14 times. And now with his new venture that he's working on, which you're going to hear about, which is Super Dope TV, and crowdfunding for television shows and different projects and films, you're going to see that he is even more piggybacking on what he did earlier finding new ways to do things in the industry that people are not doing and doing them successfully. And so when I look at Michael Simka, I think to myself, if you out there can figure out a way in your professions to look at certain areas that aren't being utilized, aren't being taken care of, certain steps or techniques that might not be utilized, Figuring out what part of your world has the least amount of things in it in a certain area. I know if you can create the relationships around it, get people excited about it, deliver extraordinary content, and really, truly keep thinking about the next step that you're going to do after you've done the step that already is innovative. I can guarantee you that you're going to have the possibility of having the groundbreaking career that Michael Simka's having. And here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. And very excited to get this show started. This is going to be a very unique episode talking about a lot of things that we really don't get to talk about that often. And my guest today, Michael Simka, has an amazing take on it. And his business model is unlike anyone you'll ever hear about 
in the entertainment business. So without further ado, let me give him a proper introduction, and hopefully you will all be with me after it's done. Michael Simka grew up in Anaheim, California, where he was greatly inspired by the late Walt Disney. As an adult, he has come to work in the animation industry that Disney pioneered. Michael is the writer, director, and producer of reversioned animated features. This means that he takes movies produced abroad in non-English languages and adapts them for American audiences, primarily through the editing and rewriting dialogue process. In the past, his efforts have been highly successful as Michael has produced three to four feature-length animated films for the home entertainment market annually in cooperation with a deal that he had with Lionsgate and partner Grindstone Entertainment. His production company, Simca Entertainment, provided the scripts, celebrity voice talent, original songs, and music score. He wrote, produced, and directed the company's last four animated films, and currently has several series in development. Fluent in five languages, Michael has worked with clients and partners around the world, casting films for producers such as Lars von Trier and consulting for many of the highest-level functions and film festivals. He recently acquired a state-of-the-art music recording facility and is planning on launching Super Dope TV, a new online program that will feature short animated and live-action series starring the biggest online influencers in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, a groundbreaking talent, a guy who's a true visionary, Michael Simka. Thank you, Barry. So one of the things I want to talk about with you today is audiences, especially younger audiences. It's pretty clear they're moving online to watch content. So what do you believe is the future of traditional television? So, yeah, the um, kids and teens are, are watching everything on, on YouTube now. So there, there was an article on Bloomberg um, just recently that said that 32% of kids prefer watching their uh, videos on a non-television device. And that's 2016. So, you know, a year ago, I, I would imagine that that number is even higher now. I have an 11 year old nephew and he watches everything, whether it be something that's normally on TV uh, or something that's specifically for digital, he's watching it on his phone or his iPad. So everything is happening in this digital space. Um, now, the the stars that that they watch are also from the digital space more and more. So, uh, of course, they're always going to follow their favorite sports stars and musicians, but the kids that they're watching 10 years ago would have been like, you know, Miley Cyrus or Drake Bell from Drake and Josh and um, who's, who's a friend. Um, but those kids who sort of, you know, ran that space of the, you know, the younger teens and, you know, older 
um, elementary school kids and stuff. They're they're in competition, I guess, kind of with the YouTubers. So people like Jake Paul and Logan Paul and like the Phase Crew and um, you know all those guys, Rice Gum, and they're they have a, a bigger influence on kids like my nephew now and they watch their videos religiously. Now the production value on those videos is not the same as Nickelodeon or Disney channel, but it just resonates with kids more. So if you can combine the production value and the story quality of a Nickelodeon or, um, or a Disney with the attractiveness of the online space um, because those kids have have huge influence like when they buy a new brand or they're wearing a new brand like supreme or bape that's coming from online those it's those kids that are online they wear it they say this is the, these are the sneakers that i'm wearing now and kids go out and buy those sneakers they don't buy those sneakers because they saw someone on nickelodeon wear them or they or even that they saw a sports player wear them they they they're going out and buying bape and supreme because they saw their youtube influencer um icons wearing them so whereas traditional media had pretty much all the the influence and power over over sales to this demographic uh, once upon a time it's now moving over in a big way on in every aspect over to YouTube and, and other places online. So do I think that kids are going to stop watching shows like Drake and Josh um, or uh, Wizards of Waverly Place? No, I think that those shows resonated with them. And, and I, I love those shows. I think they're they're great. I love the sitcom format. You know, it worked for, what, five decades? And I think it still works. But there's a there's two different kind of um trends going on right there's there's the trend that everybody has these these mobile devices and their computers and they want to watch it there and they want to watch what's easy and what they're most familiar with there and they want to watch the people that they respond to the most there and then they have the content that they like the most um or, or stories and shows and because they still watch movies they still appreciate the the narrative form um but it's sort of at odds with it right and what what uh, television networks and um, or television producers and and film producers are doing is just grabbing YouTube kids and putting them into television shows on traditional media, and, and that's not really working either, right? Like Jake Jake Paul was on the Disney Channel show, and that that didn't work too well. And obviously, there was there was some things that you know they were saying the culture didn't match and whatnot. I don't think that really that's the that was the reason i think the reason that it's not it's not just crossing over so easily like you could just grab youtube stars and put them in a traditional film um and they've done it in feature films too with you know a, a few with success but but mostly you know it's like well what are we doing wrong how can we learn from this it's because you know they're kind of meant for a different space you know and and so when you're taking you know, the kids from, from the online space and putting them in a, in a more narrative form or a long form, um, you have to change the content a little bit too. You have to take the best of both worlds, right? So, and it has to be a gradual transition. It can't be just, you know, take this YouTuber and put them in the next X-Men film, you know, like I don't, I don't think that's, that's working and I don't think it will work. 
But if you slowly but surely take what they're doing on YouTube and bring it up in quality towards what we've always done on television and in films and just kind of get there slowly in a more organic way, then I think that has to work, right? Uh, I, I heard a couple of producers talking about their their um, strategy for, for testing if a series worked. And, and this is something that you could never do on traditional television. I can't remember who it was, but it was an online producer and they did a three minute version of a film or, or of a show and it worked. And then they said, okay, well let's try a five minute version of this show. And then that worked. And then they, they kept doing that and they did a seven minute version and then a 10 minute version, then 15 minutes and then it got up to 30 minutes. And so organically they got from like that YouTube short form up to the, the weekly half hour form, right? And now that to me is, is really the way to go. It has to be a, a gradual transition. And what I'm doing coming from the, the kids and teen, um, more feature film, you know, specifically animation um, industry on my side. And then you, uh, you know, more ad adult oriented and, and comedy um, with Dave Chappelle and, and everybody. Um, I think that's sort of like the, the, the best of both worlds, in my opinion. This is the stuff I like the most. You know, I love stuff on Nickelodeon. You know, I'm a huge fan of everything Dan Schneider did with iCarly and Drake and Josh. And then, and then the SNL format, bringing the elements of that over to a YouTube um, based uh, platform, you know, or, or YouTube environment. And because SNL is, is sketches, right? It's already short form. So we're taking an element that already works from traditional television and we're going to use that on, on YouTube in combination with the animation that I've done. So animation is also, there's a lot of short animation, which I acquire from overseas and we kind of Americanize it. We're putting that together, all that stuff together to live online with the, the, the uh, network of influencers that we already work with that I've worked with on my animated films. I've made 14 animated films and, and a lot of those have been kids in this influencer space. So we're putting that together and the goal is to see what works in there. We're going to have a lot of different series. I have deals pending for about 30 different animated series right now that we're acquiring from overseas from tons of different partners, anywhere from micro companies up to mega studios in, in over a dozen different countries around the world. I just got back from Cannes um, where I, you know, we, we went over all these deals and, and they're really excited about working with, with these influencers and doing this kind of new style of television. And we're going to have this kind of like incubator where we can test all these things and it's going to be animation and it's going to be live action, short form, working with influencers and whatever works, we're going to put together first as a kind of variety series and, and then stitch that together with a weekly host and a musical guest kind of in the, in the, uh, sketch com the traditional sketch comedy show format, like an SNL or a mad TV and whatnot. So the, I feel like that is like the meeting ground between YouTube and traditional television. It's this kind of sketch variety show um, that we're all familiar with for the last you know, 50 years. 
And we're also going to be putting up these series, these individual series, which we have some of them like 50 episodes of the, the animations already done. Uh, now, those can become series for traditional television, too. So on our platform, they're going to live in three minute clip versions. But we can always extend that to seven minutes and 10 minutes and then take those up. And if and if one of them seems like or many of them seem like they would work on a traditional television network, then with you, uh, who's, you know, sold a ton of television has relationships with every television executive in town, I think. Um, well, I think I think a lot of these guys are going to be following what we're doing with uh, with the short form and seeing if if they're ready to go to traditional television. And we would love to do that. You know, that's sort of the goal is to is to make that meeting place happen between traditional television and YouTube and short form content, um, and specifically in the kids and teen um, genre, just because that's where I where I come from, and I don't think my maturity level would. Uh, would work for anything else. If you can't beat them, join them. And it seems like that's how the studios responded long ago when television threatened to take away all the film audiences in the 40s and 50s. How can the networks do something similar now with online companies and the competition they're facing with diminishing ratings and diminishing audiences? So. I think the relationship between television networks and online companies shouldn't be one of competition. I, just like film studios and television back in the 40s originally started as a competition. It was like, we got to shut down the television networks because no one's going to go to the theaters anymore. Well, they, they found a way to, to make that work, right? And... Um, and, and the television series ended up being a great um, publicity vehicle for films in the theaters as well. Uh, so they, they found a sort of happy place. And I don't think that that has happened yet between television and, and online companies or television and YouTube. So sure, you get like the new Thor trailer when you watch something on YouTube, but it's a really a small part of what you're getting online, you know? Um, and I think the way that it's going to happen and that it should happen is by expanding the television networks. It's not by, by trying to change those online companies and, and, and bringing people from that over to television and saying, what can we learn from you and how can we make our television more like YouTube? I don't think that's the way to do it. I think it's like, you know, I'm a guy who I've got a hamburger stand and I notice a guy next door who sells shakes and he's having a, a really, you know, great success at selling shakes. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Why don't we sell shakes, too? You know, so I think the, you know, and, and then we're in and out. Right. So I think television networks are going to expand and they're going to have, you know, just like they have the kids entertainment section and then they have the you know the primetime stuff and they have their daytime stuff and their news focused they're also going to have their online stuff and it's going to work hand in hand and, and each one is going to support the other neither one is going to be more important than the other um, of course there will be like those sort of spotlight things like your sunday night prime time like there will be more important like the the spotlight stuff but um 
I don't think one needs to needs to completely devour the other. I don't, and, and I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think YouTube is going to devour traditional television. I don't think traditional television is going to figure out some way to shut down YouTube and bring it all under, under their roof either. Uh, what we're doing with, with our online platform, with the MCN, and, and, and it's really, a, it, I, I hesitate to use the word MCN because it's, it doesn't really work as an MCN in the same way that broadband TV or, um, or awesomeness TV, even that were, you know, we're very influenced by awesomeness TV. And I love what I, I was there for the keynote when, when Brian, um, introduced awesomeness TV. And then again, when Jeff bought it, um, so very influenced by, it. I thought it was genius then. And, and, and those ideas are still very, um, relevant today, but the way we're forming our MCN is, is very different. It's a, uh, it's a platform free or a, or a non-platform specific um, MCN. So it's more like the way that other uh, online content companies work that, that you wouldn't think of as a content company. So the way that BuzzFeed works, for example, which um, I, I'm hugely impressed by BuzzFeed. I don't, I don't know what your opinions about it are, but for me, or what the content is like, if you like the content or not, I just love the structure of BuzzFeed. When you get something, um, and when, when you get a, you know, a notice that you need to check out what, what happened with fidget spinners or whatever it is that BuzzFeed wants you to, to learn about when you're on Twitter or on Facebook, or wherever you're connecting to, you don't even know where you're getting that content from. You know, it doesn't have to be from YouTube. It doesn't have to be on Facebook. It's usually linking you to some anonymous database that's giving you content. So this is very different from an MCN. An MCN is all channels on YouTube and they're trying to be like a, you know, a gigantic cable network, you know, except for it has 50,000 channels, right? Um, I don't think that is the future of MCNs. I think, I think MCNs are, are, the future of the, the version of an MCN that's going to exist in the future is going to be more like Buzzfeed where, you know, the brand, but you don't really care where you're getting it from. Like I can watch HBO on online or I can watch it on cable or I can, you know, with HBO go or HBO now or whatever. Um, well, even w with short form content, you could do that even more. You could get it like through Facebook, you could get it on Twitter, you could get it all these different places. And it's always going to be, you know, in, in our case, super dope TV. So super dope TV is, is our brand, our MCN brand. And, it, but again, I, I hesitate to use the word MCN because it's not exactly, we, we will have, um, sort of different channels or different, um, um, sort of, uh, sections of our entertainment that focus on one thing or another, but it's not going to be divided up into specifically this YouTube channel and that YouTube channel. Um, and the only reason I think that most companies are still doing it in that way is because YouTube's monetization is the, is the most fleshed out now. It's the, it's the easiest to work with. So monetization on Facebook is like, you know, it's, it doesn't exist yet. It's a, it's they're just getting started, but once they're in place and when Snapchat gets theirs together, you know, Snapchat just built a, a, a new studio to produce their, their own content. Like they're, they're coming at this, trying to become a, a, an all new network as well, partnered with NBC universal. So the platforms are going to change, but 
it's really important to establish a brand in whatever those platforms um, are. You know, what, however people are getting their their um, their content, we have to be there, whether it be through Snapchat or Facebook or YouTube. And we don't want to be tied down to just this one YouTube channel. Um, and and I think television networks sort of need to do the same thing. They need to look at um, look at online as as sort of this this great malleable space that they can put their branded content, um, all not branded content as in like, you know, something selling uh, Gucci bags or something, or but branded as in like NBC brand content. They need to have that just like sort of everywhere and not lock down to one channel. And I think the way they're going to do that is by working with people who have established that sort of architecture. Right. And that's what we're doing is is uh, is establishing that architecture right now. Um, and, and I don't think we're going to be the only ones. We're the we're probably the first people that are doing that. But I think it just makes logical sense um, that that content needs to be delivered on a on a non platform specific basis. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Everyone in the entertainment business is talking about the crisis in the television market. There's networks like CBS that will always come out with the commercials were America's number one. <laughs> you know, there isn't anybody I know that isn't talking about the crisis in the television market, even though television is at its highest level and the content is so extraordinary. It's just the competition between places like Netflix and then Hulu and Amazon and, and just the online platforms themselves seem to take away so much ratings, even though you'll be on CBS and they'll say, we have the number one news network, we have the number one sitcom, the number one drama. But you know that the ratings are going down and down, the viewership's going down and down. So I want you to talk a little bit about that and how it's not necessarily a bad thing, in your opinion. 
the uh, crisis, there, I guess there was always a crisis in the media industry since the beginning, right? There was a crisis when sound came in because the actors weren't able to do physical comedy. They were locked down because their microphones were right on the table and they couldn't move. It was all about just the, the, the dialogue. Um, so there was a crisis then. And then there was a crisis in radio when, when uh, film came in. And then there was a crisis, oh, that was before that, you know, the, the one before the silence to the talkies, there was the crisis in radio. And then there was a crisis in film when television came in, I'm probably skipping a few crises already or crises already. Um, then there was a crisis when um, the golden age kind of broke up and the, and the actors came together and got got strong with the Screen Actors Guild. And then there was a crisis when the indies came about in the late 60s and started making stuff that was grittier and appealing to, you know, your rebellious types and whatnot. Um, so there was always a crisis and then the, and then the VHS guys came in and, and that was a crisis and cable was a crisis to TV. Um, and so we're, we're kind of just in another one of those, I think, you know, and, and it, it's just like one big crisis from, from the, from about 19, well, whenever, you know, silent films came in and, uh, and started competing with radio. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily see it much as a crisis, but I, I think people got used to dealing with, with, with things which were like, it was like, there was one scope, right? It went from, from theater to television. That was very comprehensible, right? And, or like it went from VHS to DVD or then, then DVD to whatever, but, uh, or Blu-ray. And, and these are like little micro crises. Well, the same way with the internet being like a library for everything, it kind of had the same effect on this idea of a crisis. So whereas before you just had these, these little crises, which might've seemed big at the time. Now the crisis is just like limitless, right? Because the internet can, can do anything. Anybody can do anything they want if they know how to code in JavaScript <laughs> basically. Right. Um, so I think people get a little freaked out about that. And, and then, you know, the, the, the huge success of YouTube and, and then your, your SVODs like Hulu and, and Netflix and whatnot, that, you know, doesn't make a lot of people feel more comfortable. But if you, if you just kind of chill and look at it from, from where, you know, for what it is, people are still just watching content that they enjoy for the cheapest price that they can right um if they can get it through a subscription service and not pay on a transactional like like a tvod like like itunes you have to pay for each movie well as soon as you figure out that you can get you know as many movies as you want for 10 bucks you're gonna drop the tvod model and it's the same with spot that's how spotify took over right um and now they're doing that with theaters too there's movie pass where you can for 10 bucks a month you can see as many movies as you want there's a plug for movie pass um but it's the same thing. People are watching the content that they that they want with um you know for the for the lowest price that they can. And the thing that enters into this is the brands, right? And and the reason this is this is good for the little guys is not that we have the means to make films like no like never before. Like I mean, that's been true for a long time, right? I mean, I've had Final Cut and and I've had a 
pretty decent camera for a long time now, right? And if and if you're saying in 2017 that now we finally have cameras that can shoot feature films, then I'm sorry you haven't been paying much attention to technology, and and for editing and and all the other stuff. I mean, there's microphones that do almost as good a job at voiceover work that I you know I, I had a thirty forty thousand dollar setup in my in my animation recording studio. I could go to like Fry's and get something that's pretty darn close for a few hundred bucks now. Um, now, I'm not going to use that Cartoon Network if you're listening and you want to partner with me on a show. Um, we, we'll still, you know, there's still the, you know, the Avalon EQ compressor combo and the and the U87 that's standard for cartoon industry. Sure, we can still use that. But if you're on YouTube, that doesn't really matter. You can use the blue microphone or whatever it's for 300 bucks. Um, so that we've always been able to do as independents. But what we're able to do now because things are kind of like floating and going over here and it's because it's so free form, everybody's trying this and trying that the guys that are out there and consolidating into a concept, like a concept like Disney, right? Uh, a brand like that, that will, that's more possible now because there really aren't any brands like that. There's no Disney of the internet. Although, um, Sharzad Rafati, um, hi, Sharzad, the CEO of Broadband, announced a couple of years at MIPCOM that she was building the online Disney, which I thought was uh, just an awesome comment. But uh, I, uh, I, I look to Disney as well as like kind of a as a brand to emulate, and making a brand online is is easier to do than than before we had the internet and bef and that is becoming that's only possible when you can get your content in all different places all the time you know 20 years ago or, or even 10 years ago you had to like buy these huge billboards or like pay lots of you know lots of money to to have it you know uh have it go out online if you were going out online. But now if you understand viral and you know you're you have a good influencer network and you know you're you're delivering on multiple platforms like you can build a brand in the same way that you can you know code an app. You know and so that I think is something new that wasn't possible before. Um, so whereas we could always make the product before just you know, making the brand is something that's that that has just come about really, really recently. And that's what we that's what we're really focusing on with Superdope TV. So as far as the IP for each of the series, we we have like 30 new series um, animated. Those, that's just the animated stuff. And then the live action stuff, there's even more, um, you know, the IP and like who's going to monetize off of it and stuff like that's that's important. But what's really important is just having it all under the umbrella of super dope TV, because, um, you know, I'm, where is that going to go? Well, we'll, we'll see next year w what happens when, when you mention super dope TV and everybody knows what it is, you know, and I, the truth is I don't know what's going to happen at that point, but I know it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty awesome. Um, and, and that's the really, that's really the goal for what we're doing right now. Would you do me a favor and just explain to our audience what an MCN is in your words and how your model is actually 
what I consider to be the next generation of that concept. In other words, what is a platform free network so that we all understand it? Okay. Um, so an MCN, a multi-channel network, is basically one YouTube channel with a bunch of other channels under it. So you'll have, um, you'll have Awesomeness TV and then you'll have one of those influencers' channels under it or you'll have one of their shows will have its individual channel under it. So it's, it's like one, one giant channel and then little channels underneath of it. And we will be working to some extent like that on YouTube. We'll, we'll work like that to some degree, but we're not going to start like that. It's going to be formed in a different way. So if we work with someone who's at full screen, um, we're not going to say, Hey, well, why don't you join our MCN? Um, we, we want to make this show and, and you got to come and join us to do it. Like we're fine with them staying with full screen as long as, you know, the, the idea of super dope, you know, and you know, what we're doing is, is going over. We just see that as cross pollination because the more important thing is the brand, right? And if our brand can exist over in full screen land or in um, broadband TV land or at maker or wherever, that so much the better, you know, we want to get our, our DNA out there as much as possible. And it's probably the better way to go too, because we're pre-launch. Whereas some of those channels on full screen or on broadband TV have 10 million subscribers. Like, why would we want to post a video on ours when they can post a video of them, you know, put it, tying their shoes and get a million views, you know, so it's much better for us to work with that. So that's, that's fine. They can do that and they can keep the monetization and everything. We're about getting our, uh, getting, getting what we do out there and, and we want to work with everybody. Um, and so that's why we're, we're non-platform specific. Uh, eventually we have to make money on all of this and we have other ways that we're making money already, but we do want to have our own sort of like, um, system, traditional MCN system at YouTube as well. Uh, we're just not sort of locked into that. Whereas that, where that's like the main, main thing. I wouldn't even say that's our, our primary goal. Um, it's, it's part of it, but I mean, like we, we're not even only going to be on YouTube. You know, and even someplace like Facebook where monetization is like just, you know, total fledgling. Um, we still want to, if there's someone out there that's got 20 million views and they want to do, you know, a, a watch episode, um, which is Facebook's new um, broadcasting platform. We can't make any money off of it, but we can get uh, we can get involved with an influencer that we're really interested in, or a production company that we're really interested in, or a collaboration with another with with a network or something. Hey, we're we're definitely we're definitely into that um, because we're seeing this more. We're seeing it long term. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your experience with micro ventures raising funds for your project Bunny Bravo. I think it's important that we all understand how does crowdfunding work? How does it change things for startups or even established companies? And especially in the entertainment industry, how does it work now and how will it work in the future? So we did a crowdfunding regulation CF crowdfunding campaign with micro ventures, which is a uh, an affiliate or a partner of Indiegogo and they're the equity component of Indiegogo. So when you go on Indiegogo or Kickstarter, 
you are not buying shares into a company you're you're just kind of donating money you're and and they give you perks right because they're not allowed to sell you anything on that they they just give you a reward as a sort of a thank you right so it's it's not a the traditional crowdfunding is not like a stock market it's not a it's not it's not even really a technically it's not even a a a, a business um platform right it's more like a a hobbyist platform which is used for business right whereas equity is the equity crowdfunding is something completely different you're getting into it and you're 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 doing a business transaction with everybody who is investing so they're actually investing they're not just donating they're investing and whether you're getting you know a revenue share or or actual like stock like shares in a in a company so each one is going to be different each each campaign is going to be different every company that does a regulation cf crowdfunding campaign will be different ours um I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know how much I can talk about the specifics of ours, but we did raise our entire amount. Not too many companies have done that. Not too many companies have done Regulation CF because it is, um, it is more difficult than regular crowdfunding. Most people don't really know what it is. They kind of stay away from it. But of the ones that have done it, there's there have been a few films. We raised five hundred thousand dollars, which was our max. We set the the maximum at five hundred thousand. We were kind of testing it. We thought it would be a great publicity thing, also, to get people to to start thinking about the the animated film Adventures of Bunny Bravo and its uh, sister film uh, Un Conejo de Huevos in Spanish. And I was like, hey, I mean, if we can get people talking about it out there and being engaged in some way, and and have some kind of commitment that's a financial commitment and like just seemed like a great thing regardless of of what happened um, we went for it you know and and you know made a made a nice video pitch and people really responded to it they responded to the celebrities that i've worked with in the past and um and just being part of an animated film um, now we're doing another regulation cf campaign for super dope tv and it's basically in in the in the network right you're, you're buying into like this whole thing the brand of super dope tv so it's it's very different um the last one was a revenue share model where you know, you bought into you know uh, uh a share of the revenue that the that the film makes and this one um actually this one i can't i can't tell you the specifics of that because it's regulated by the sec but you can go to microventures.com and just you know, search for Super Dope TV there. There's only, you know, 10 or 15 companies which are ever, you know, uh, raising money through through um, equity crowdfunding. Um, but it's it's a huge thing. It's it's basically allowing. Allowing people who don't have access to, you know, the stock exchange and, you know, uh, accredited investors and and the venture capital market and 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 everybody else it allows them to just sort of figure it out and you could learn about it on your computer and and just sort of network around and figure you know figure out your way to 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 position your company and have a good strategy and business model and you can do it now you know there are costs involved you know there's uh with the marketing and with the sec filings and all that but they're a heck of a lot less than 
doing like a, a reg a or or like um you know doing an ipo <laughs> it's like that's those, those costs are are astronomical and 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 i don't there's probably not not too many diy books out there for how to do your own ipo you know <laughs> so um i think it's a great alternative uh crowdfunding um, the equity crowdfunding and it, and it makes people take it seriously, right? You're not just like, I'm going to make a comic book and it's going to be fun and hope people like it. And I'll give you a free comic book. If we, if we do it, it's like, no, you're, you're entering into a business transaction. We're going to get into the entertainment business together. So it's not only good for the, for the content providers or the producers, it's also good for the people who are investing because they can like, it's, it's, you know, aside from like knowing the owners of a film studio or um, investing on NASDAQ, I guess, um, how are you going to get into the to the film and entertainment business if uh, if you're not, you know, actually working there? You want to you want to invest in it in a reasonable way. Right. Uh, well, I think crowdfunding is going to open that up to uh, to everybody, both the, the people working there and the people who want to invest in it. And it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, you know, unless you know, they overturn these, right. The jobs act or something like that. They, they change the laws that, that make this possible now, cause it's only been possible for less than two years now or about two years. Um, unless something happens with that, where it gets re-regulated or something, it's, it's going to just continue to grow and grow and grow. And I think it's going to become more like the stock market. It's going to be it, it, in the same way that YouTube was just like this, this little tiny thing compared to traditional television. Now it's like it's vying for the attention of traditional television. I think crowdfunding is going to do the same thing to traditional investment markets. Hey, everybody. I'm really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. Who do you look up to in the industry, and why do they mean something to you? In other words, if you ever look in the mirror and say, I like that kind of career. I mean, obviously, you mentioned people like Hyan Saban, who's actually at the penthouse of the building we're recording today, and Brian Robbins' 
but also people like Michael Ovitz and a name that's on everyone's tongues lately for all the wrong reasons, Harvey Weinstein. But I guess what I'm asking is, what have you learned about business from these guys and how have they helped you from watching them and studying them? So the guys that I try to model my career and 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 am most influenced by, obviously Walt Disney. I think I've talked enough about Walt Disney. I don't want to bore the audience with a with a biography of Walt Disney. And and I think most people know how you know he moved out here from Kansas and you know got his start in 1923. And um, so we won't get into that. But Haim Saban is another guy that I really look up to, and he's someone that. A lot of people know in the in the industry, but people outside the industry might not know him. Um, he's the guy who who made the Power Rangers, and the way he did it was he he bought a, a completely unknown TV series from Japan, and it was a series that they tried to sell, but because there was such a stigma to putting foreign television shows on American networks, they were unable to sell it and. And they had more success in other countries where that stigma is not so uh, prevalent, but it still didn't have much success. You know, it was relatively unknown everywhere in the world. And so he got it for, you know, some funny money and uh, came back here and, and knowing that it would be difficult to put on TV. But he saw an angle that if I, he, that he could he could re-edit it. He could the the thing that made it foreign because Power Rangers is divided into two parts, right? There's the parts with the kids that have their masks on and they look like robots and they're fighting monsters and stuff. And then there's the part where they're talking to each other and they have their masks off. And he said, "Well, the only part that because uh, they're not running around Tokyo with a bunch of you know Japanese-looking buildings, they're they're in this futuristic world. So the only thing that really looks." foreign is when they have their masks off so he actually got the i think he got the costumes from the guys in japan too they just gave him the he's like well, can i have these costumes too so he brought those back um and hired actors here and just replaced the parts where they're talking to each other and those are the least expensive parts too because there's no action there's no special effects it's just like close-ups on their face and they're talking to each other and then back to them fighting the monsters and the, when they're fighting the monsters that's not those american kids that's the japanese kids um, with masks on. So I like that because he saw a loophole, you know, and, and anytime you're going to put something, you know, find a new angle on the market. Um, and an angle on the market is always doing something a little bit better for a little bit lower price. Right. And what he did was this show would cost me $15 million back in the U.S. But if I do it here, well, it only costs me whatever I have to pay them, which is going to be next to nothing. And then whatever I have to supplement, which is these uh, these kids, the, you know, without their masks on. And I could do that with like a green screen and like all right, they're giving me the costumes. So <laughs> it's like the cost of the cameras and a few lights. Right. So he's getting something for like fifty thousand dollars in value that he has to pay for. And and he's getting like $15 million in value. So it's the loophole that, that he was able to do that. Um, and, and I think the other guys you mentioned, you know, Michael Ovitz and, um, you know, Brian Robbins and people like that, um, they also found loopholes. So Brian Robbins did uh, short form versions of television series, and we're kind of doing something similar as well. 
Um, he mentioned doing versions of television shows, but in three minute episodes, uh, which would live online and kind of be as an incubator. Like we're, we're doing a lot of that same stuff. Uh, I think he mentioned as an example during his keynote in uh, 2013, um, the view, he was going to do the view. It was going to be kids, but, um, and I don't, I don't think he ever did it, but it sounded really great in the keynote. I was like, that's brilliant. You know, he's going to do the view. He's like, and we're going to do it for like 50 cents. You know, I think that's, you know, it was, but it was like, in all reality, it'll cost like a thousand dollars, you know, but you know, the view on television, you know, you have to have like that big grid of lights and the sound stage and like all the scheduling and everything. They're probably spending several hundred thousand dollars an episode on that. So he found a way to, to do that. You know, he found a loophole the same way that, that Haim Saban did. Um, and, and actually, um, you know, Ovitz did the same thing, right? When he was, uh, he was at William Morris and left and, and launched CAA. He saw that um, there was something lacking and he had, he had the ability to do this. And what, a lot of times when you find a loophole, it's because something is overvalued and, and another thing is, is undervalued. So when you, when people are putting their, their focus on, on when everybody's putting their focus on one thing and they're kind of neglecting this other thing, like in Heim's um, example, it, would, it was the foreign content, like nobody cared about it. And that's in my case too. It's fo- that's why I really relate to him is because I deal with foreign content and it's like, nobody cares about it, but I do. You know, I, I, that's, that's my thing. I love it. You know, and it's taken me a while to sort of weed through it and everything and see like what I can use and see how I can use it. And then, you know, it's not like just grabbing a show that's already popular here or, or made by a production company here. It's not a, it's not a turnkey plug and play type thing. Um, it's kind of like going to, uh, you know, uh, my dad is kind of like this, you know, he's a, he's a real estate guy. Um, and he's always owned properties, which weren't, you know, the, the most expensive, luxurious ones, you know, and, and he's, he's a landlord. And so he was, he's kind of a, also a junk man. If you're a landlord in that, in that, um, market, you're also a junk man because you don't have the money to go to Sears and, or, <laughs> I'm really dating myself now, but you don't have the money to go to Sears to buy a thousand dollar refrigerator. Every time you get a new tenant, you have to know where to get refrigerators for a hundred bucks. He's got a, that's how much my dad pays for refrigerators and he buys hundreds of them all the time. And he pays a hundred dollars. If he gets one for 75, it was a good day. If he got, gets one for 125, he'll gripe a little bit, but he's, he has to buy hundreds of them, right? And it's the same thing for lawnmowers. It's the same thing for windows. It's the same thing for all these things. So you kind of have to like understand this, this kind of salvage mentality. You have to be to, to go out and work with like foreign content and things. It's, it's, it's similar in that way. Um, and, and, and to me, that's, that's just fun. And I think to Haim, it was fun. And to, to Brian, it was fun when he launched Awesomeness TV. And I think to Michael Ovitz, it was fun too, because he was looking at, I, I think television was a big thing for him. Like everybody wanted to, to work with, with the film actors and the film directors and the film producers, you know, and he was like, well, but television makes, you know, like those guys are earning tons of money. Like, why aren't they getting like the, the best seats at the table? You know, it's like, it's like, well, because they're television guys. Right. 
well, I think Mike thought that was kind of silly. And I think it's silly. <laughs> and it just is silly. If those guys are making all that money, then someone should be paying attention to them. And, and nobody else was at that time. So that was a, a, a loophole. Now it's now it's just common sense and, and there's entire divisions that just focus on, on television. And that's the old, the old money now, right? Traditional television. But at that time it was like, that was like their version of like the foreign content. Right. And Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein was, uh, was, uh, now in spite of all the scandal, um, he was a, uh, a fixture in can and in, you know, at Berlin and just the, all these markets where the, the foreign production companies and foreign studios come. Most heads of, of studios don't go to those things, right? That's kind of like, that's the battleground. You have to, you have to get up at 6 a.m. and you're on your feet and you're walking. It's like, it's kind of grueling. It's kind of, especially if you're going for your first time. I just got back and I took two people who work with me. They, they were there for their first time. I was like on the plane. I'm like, this is going to be like boot camp. You know, this is not like sitting in, you know, sipping champagne. Although you see that in the publicity for Cannes, like everybody's just like, it's like being in the Bahamas. Nothing like that. If you're, if you're not like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or something, if you're actually there to, to do business deals, it's not like that. So the thing that I, I kind of always admired about, about him and I, you know, very unfortunate time to be saying that, but I have to, you know, with the scandal, obviously awful what, what happened and you know, that can't be, um, you can't say anything good about that. And, but, uh, I like to say something good about, about people when uh, when everybody else is saying something bad, so I'll just throw it out there. And and that he that Harvey was always a guy who who went out there and and just got in the mix and he did it, you know. And he walked those floors in the same way that the first the the newbies and the and the and the rookies were out there trying to trying to make deals and picking up information from foreign producers and and just you know walking across. I mean, you walk like ten miles a day when you're out there. And, um, and I think that that's a certain type of businessman, right? There's the businessman who's sitting on his yacht and calling a few, you know, once a day and how's everything going. And then there's the guy who wants to be on the ground or like a general who's like sitting in his cushy office or the general who's at the front of the, of, of the troops. Right. And, and he was, he was a guy like that. I mean, look, Avi Lerner was, and, and is always out there too. Right. Um, there's, there's, there are other guys who are like heads of studios who are always out there doing, putting in the, the work. But if you don't put in that work, you don't see enough of the, of the battleground to find those loopholes. And, and if you're a, if you're an independent, the only way that you can, you can compete or even play with the big guys is by seeing all that stuff and being able to find those loopholes. So that's why I go to all of those things. That's, that's why I, you know, try to get it. I want to stay up to date on, on all those things. And, and I think of all those people you just mentioned right there, um, they were, they were all like that. Right. And Walt Disney was like that too. He studied religiously what you know, Buster Keaton was doing and Charlie Chaplin, but also the other animation studios, what they were doing, the Felix, the cat guys. And, and, you know, he really wanted to know all, like everything. So it's like a giant game of Pictionary. 
and you, and you have to see all those cards to know that, oh, I remember this one and this one matches with this one over here. Um, and you, you just can't get it by, by hearing it from somebody else or just seeing a limited amount of that content. Knowing what we know about what you're doing and how you're doing it, I think it'd be really interesting to hear what some of your favorite television shows are and how they've inspired you to do things in your world with your company. Favorite TV shows of all time. Um, I think I, I have a fondness for the stuff from the 80s just because that's when I was, you know, in elementary school watching sitcoms and whatnot. So I love stuff like Different Strokes and Family Ties and ALF. Um, but I also have a huge respect for the stuff from like the 50s and 60s. So Twilight Zone is my favorite show of all time. And but I also really appreciate like the the Western shows from that time, even though I'm, I'm probably more of a fan of specific Western movies like Rio Bravo or um, Shane and things like that than, than I am of, you know, some of the the Western TV shows. But I just love that that at that time there was a place that every day or, or you know, whatever day of the week you could go on and you could tune in and go to the old West there. I think that, that idea of like that part of American life was just such a, such a great thing. Um, and it's maybe, maybe more of the concept of it, you know, like leave it to beaver. I don't, I've, I've seen, you know, a lot of episodes of it when I was a kid, but I, it's not like I've watched every episode. Like I just have to know like everything that happened to the beaver, you know? Um, but I love the idea of leave it to beaver. I love the idea of, of the sitcom and the television show in general. Um, and then as far as like your, uh, your action shows, I, I really liked like MacGyver and uh, quantum leap and and those that were just kind of silly you know that didn't didn't take themselves too seriously you know i i i really um i really have a problem when when a show especially a science fiction or like a crime show is just like so serious it's like you know it's like look we're it's tv guys you know this is not a it's not a factual thing it's it's supposed to be entertaining um and so I generally don't like sci-fi or crime shows um, of today or, or of any time in the last 20 years. Um, I mean, just think of the theme song of MacGyver. You know, it was a crime show, you know, or, or like uh, Miami Vice. Like those are, those are crime shows. Chips was a crime show, you know. Dukes of Hazard was a crime show for, for that matter. You know, or Starsky and Hutch and these, these, these things. That's before my time. But, you know... They always, they they always let the the viewer kind of like relax and go to this other world. It wasn't, they didn't try to like burden them with such seriousness that you see now. And and uh, yeah, I just I despise really serious content in general. You know, anything that's just like too artistic or too seriously about um, you know any particular thing. It's like I feel like I'm in school. And, and I'm religiously opposed to school in every shape and form. So, um, yeah, it's got to have kind of a fantasy and adventurous quality to it um, for me to, to, to really like it. And as far as, like, comedy shows, um, 
working with uh, with the with the head writer of the the Eric Andre show, one of my favorite shows. I love the Eric Andre show. Dan Curry, um, who uh, we're we're developing some stuff for now, uh, or, or with now on uh, Super Dope TV and some of my animated films and stuff. I love like the Nickelodeon stuff, especially Dan Schneider's stuff, your iCarly and your Drake and Josh and your Amanda show and things like that. Not such a huge fan of a lot of the other. Um, kids stuff, um, even like in the eighties or nineties or whatnot. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the, the showrunners for, you know, Amber show, Amber, Amber Frank, who's worked on a lot of our films, her, her showrunners, Jamie and Boyce, um, you know, so there's the kids stuff and then Curb Your Enthusiasm, one of my favorite shows of all time. Just absolutely love Larry David. He's, he's, he's amazing. He is like the Batman, right? When they put the the light up into the sky, it's like we need Larry David. And then I watched it. I was like, <laughs> I felt like Batman came in, and it was finally Batman came back to Gotham. Like I actually got that feeling. So um, stuff like that, um, just really absurdist comedy, like Mister Show and and Tim and Eric. I love that stuff too. In your opinion, what do you think the ideal entertainment company for kids teens and tweens looks like so the ideal entertainment family entertainment company or kids and teens entertainment company my if you asked me that my entire life i would have said the disney company that walt disney was running and and that was like a a source of comfort for me that i could always say i know exactly what it is what i'm going for and, but it was also a source of distress because like you can't just like model your career off of like trying to do what something else somebody else did right like I, that my goal would be to do something exactly like what Walt Disney did, which is a, a huge goal you know but it's not really it's not really a valid goal right you have to do your own thing and so I guess over the past like maybe couple of years I've been thinking like what is it about what I want to do that's different? Then, uh, you know, because I love everything that Walt did, but what am, but my personality is not Walt's personality and Mickey Mouse is an, is an incarnation of Walt Disney's personality. He actually voiced Mickey for the first 10 years, um, until his voice started changing from smoking and everything, which is uh, why I quit smoking. I'm smoking a vape now. Everybody should quit smoking. Yeah. This thing is amazing. ADD here a little bit, but I, I got this vape and I, I smoked for 20 years and the uh, the thing about the the thing about vapes I've tried them many times in the past but I never could find one that that um, tasted or felt like a cigarette so it was like it always tasted like a cinnabon or something like that you know like David I heard David Cross say that <laughs> like I don't think as a smoker I need one that tastes like a cinnabon right um, and that's exactly what they taste like most of them but I found this this one that makes a menthol flavored juice that makes you feel like you're actually smoking a menthol cigarette and i wasn't a menthol smoker but i was able to smoke a menthol if i really needed a cigarette so i just feel like i've just become a menthol smoker and i'm not getting you know all the the cancer stuff yeah and so that this is one of the one of the best things ever but um as far as the the ideal family entertainment company or kids and teen entertainment company that I that that I would like to see or like to to build, it 
you know, I guess I had to step back from what it is that I loved about what Walt did. And maybe I don't see um, all the time with, uh, with companies now is that there was an idea, there was a sense of adventure and a sense of entertainment for its own sake where you could step outside, you could step out of all the responsibilities and crap and everything in your life and you go to this other place. It was this, um, and Star Wars does that to a huge degree. I remember going to the theaters as a kid and just like feeling I was like I was going to another world when I you know, put my butt in that seat. I was just like, I was just taken to another universe. Um, and for what they're worth, the the old superhero movies did that for me too. That I know they're, you know, there's there's things that are you know better quality about the superhero movies now as compared to like the Superman movies in the in the eighties. But for me, those had like kind of an innocence, and it's the same thing about the the TV shows in the eighties, like your different strokes and whatnot. It was like you watch them, even if they were about serious things, they still let you kind of be a little more comfortable than you are in real life. And now I think it's like they don't want to give you that. They're like, well, you're still in humanity. You're still in, you know, the world and it's got to be you got to be responsible. It's like, well, yeah, well, let me be responsible after this half hour of of enjoyment. Right. Like just give me the half hour. like that's what i expect from from content producers you know um first and foremost yeah sure influence people try to get the world and make it a better place by influencing people's opinions and stuff there's nothing wrong with that but don't take that that kind of you know that that thing that that transports you to another universe don't get don't take that away from the television shows don't take that away from the movies you know, if you give that to, to people in, in music and in TV and film, you know, I feel like that is that's the ideal. And that's not just kids and te- kids and teens, but that's that's any kind of show. I think Rio Bravo, not a kid's movie at all. And it's a violent movie. You know, there's there's all kinds of issues in that movie, but it lets you kind of go to another world. Right. Um, where movies today and TV today and generally just doesn't do. Um, the things that I love about stuff today, I feel like, you know, just the narrative structures have, they've, you know, with like Charlie Kaufman and people like that, they've just like, they turn things on their head. So they're just like much more virtuosic in their, in their storytelling, which is amazing. Right. And they can do jokes inside of jokes and, and jokes about things that you never thought you could joke about, you know, and like the diversity and just like, you know, being able to talk about so many different things and being open-minded to new things. I think that stuff's all amazing, but just, you know, combine that with that, that, that adventurous quality that we had before. And that to me would be something that's never happened. Um, because all of these new things weren't around at the time of Walt Disney. But if we could, if we could capture that magic and then add all this stuff, not replace it with, but but put them both together because they're they're de- it's definitely not binary. You can have both, um, but but generally people don't do both. It happens every once in a while, but um, it's definitely not the the standard to have have both. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called "I Killed JFK." It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, 
never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. For the most part, I think everybody who listens to this podcast will agree that when you think of family entertainment, it's generally big budgets in all the genres. That's the way it normally is, huge budgeted films with huge stars. But what's interesting is that you've had incredible success with small budgets. And I think the audience would love to know how have you been able to compete with the studios when they spend over a hundred times what you spend? I think there's two ways primarily that I'm able to leverage the, the limited resources that I have for, um, for, uh, for working in a genre that's, that's really typically high budget um, animation and specifically animated feature films which are like 100 or 200 million dollars like you said. And and one is there are hundreds of companies out there in other countries which are trying to make which are which are trying to compete with American studios. Now, they try to do it with live action, but they use their local actors and it's like, well, we don't have Brad Pitt here and we don't have Johnny Depp or Meryl Streep or whoever. And so we have this like local version of her and she's Thai or she's Indian or whatever. And that just, they're not famous. So that doesn't, when you watch the Thai Meryl Streep, you know, in a, in a big budget movie from there, it doesn't have the same effect. And so they're, they're sort of right out of the gate. They're, they're at a loss. They're, they're, they're like fighting with one hand tied behind their back. But in animation, they're like, well, look, we don't actually, we don't actually need um, these stars because they're all drawn, right? And we just have to make the cutest character or the most interesting character. And they all get dubbed into other languages anyway. So they're, you know, when a Brad Pitt stars in a, in an animated film, um, if it goes to, uh, if, if it goes to France, it's not Brad Pitt's voice anyways. So like, that's, that's, that's not, that's something that we can compete on the same level as, as studios. So, um, so they go and they spend all this money on these animated films. Well, they also lack the culture, right, of making American films. So even though even though they they are technically competing on the on the on an equal ground with American studios, they're making movies which are very different, and they don't work in the same way. Some foreign producers, like Luc Besson, has studied the American art form of cinema and and makes movies like Taken and things like that, which are um, very American, even though he's French. But most foreign producers, whether they be commercial or art house, they make something which is a very different product from American. And so they end up spending all this money on animated films and they're still unsellable and they're just like, oh crap, but they still do it because they have the best chance with that and they're able to sell them. The live action, they just can't sell at all. Um, so there are companies like the, the you know, big studios will buy for their DVD releases. They'll buy these foreign animated films and they'll throw some stars on it and they'll dub it, right? Um, and they look like foreign films, but they, you know, they, they're not big releases, whatever. Um, and I just looked at that and I said, 
well, okay. Um, couldn't we do something better? It's like you bought this. I kind of look at like the big studios. They, they went around to these foreign production companies and they saw them building all these houses, which are kind of failures. No one wanted to buy these houses and they bought them for like a cheaper price. And, and then they just like, you know, painted the fronts and, uh, and passed them off. They're like, well, if you can't afford the, the expensive house down the way, would you be interested in this kind of shitty house? And, and uh, we'll save you some money or whatever. I was like, well, what if we just, what if we actually took this kind of, you know, not to say that the foreign films are shitty, but because um, they're good for, for their countries, they're just not good for us, you know? What if we took these and, and just tried to do something with them and actually made them cool? So every movie that I get from a foreign country, um, India, China, Korea, South America, Russia, I've taken foreign animated films from like every country. Every one I get, I, I respond like a typical American. I'm like, I don't like this movie. This is like a movie that just is kind of weird. It's too slow. The music's weird. Um, the dialogue, the jokes, I'm like, I don't get it. Um, so I start out with that, and I have one rule. I'm like, I'm going to just sit down here with my writers or by myself or with my actors or whoever, and I'm just going to keep working on it until I like it. And how do I know I like it? When I when the heartstrings get pulled and when I start laughing. When I'm laughing at something or I have an emotional response, then I know I've changed it into something. And it's not going to look exactly like a Pixar movie or, a, or you know, I, I cried during Toy Story 2 like everybody else did when uh, Jesse's remembering, you know, you know that, that's, that's moving. Like, I'm not going to say that I, had, I have one of those scenes, you know, in my movies. Because I am working with a specific, you know, set of materials. You know, I am, at the end of the day, I'm only able to convert the footage that's there and, and change it, put this scene in front of that scene, change the dialogue so it's where it once was about honoring your your father and the tradition and everything. I change it into a, a dopey story between jo between Josh Demel and Rob Schneider where Rob's telling him how he he tried to pick up this bird and by by going out for worms and, and goes over and over and, and inspires him to go ask the, the girl playing out Hillary Duff. Right. So that originally was this uh, story about honor, you know, tradition and honor, which I just was like, whatever, you know, um, I want to hear a dopey story. And, and that was like, Oh, I get it. You know, and, and kids watch it and they like it and they, you can tell they smile. And so it's a version of that, you know? Yeah. It's not um, when she loved me, you know, <laughs> in toy story too, but um, it is, uh, it's, it's kind of a version of that because it, I, it gets me in that way or the, or the jokes that I put in, they might not be the funniest thing of all time, but they make me laugh. And, and so I'm able to take these things that they're, they're unsellable and other producers don't really know how to do not, not to say that they couldn't do it. They just haven't done it. I've done it for 14 films. They don't know how to take these films from other countries and make them into something, you know, that's, that seems like an American film. Um, and, and I do, I've trained myself to do that. Um, so it's really, uh, so there's that, that price point because they're, they've already not been able to sell them. And so I can buy them for very cheap. And then, and then working with actors who, uh, they know it's a, a cheaper movie, so they don't charge me as much. So, you know, those, those things enter into the budget factors. And then the other thing that that I think I'm able to compete with the studios is just the human thing, right? There's a lot of people in Hollywood who, who are uh, 
who are in it because they love movies and they want to make it just something that really resonates with people. And it's just this communication. That's their way of expressing themselves and, and delivering something beautiful. And then there's people who just don't give a shit, you know, and there's, there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who just don't give a shit and they're, they're fascinated with the, the, the fast paced industry. They love Hollywood and everything, but it doesn't come through in their movies. Um, and I think for it to come through in your movies, you just have to love movies more than anything else. Like Tarantino said it, like if you love, if you sincerely love movies, you can't help but make good movies. And I think that's very true. You know, um, I think anybody who, uh, who loves movies or not all movies, like I love a specific kind of movies. If you find the kind of movies that you really love and, and it just becomes that thing that it's better than falling in love, Right. Because that to me, that is like a, it's a bigger thing than, than or at least like on the same plane. It's, it's up there with falling in love. Like if that's that big of a thing for you, you're going to make something something really awesome. And I would say, you know, a very small percentage of people anywhere doing anything relate to what they what they do for a living or what they make um, in that way. And so I think that gives me an edge. When you think about what you're doing, why do you think you've had such success creating content that communicates to kids, teens, and tweens? You hate it when people call what you do in your area of the film business. You hate the term dubbing. Could you explain the difference between dubbing and what you do? The reason that I have specifically focused on kids and teens entertainment is because I grew up next door to Disneyland. I was a, I was a child actor and I'd been coming up to Hollywood on auditions and I had mild success as a, as a kid in, in entertainment. Um, and so I, you know, I was sort of in that world, the eighties world of sitcoms and whatnot. And, and that was kind of like a, a big thing for me. So that's probably like second on my list. And those were shows like different strokes and, and Alf and all that. I had probably auditioned for several, like all of those at one point, um, ended up just doing a small role on a, on a soap opera and a lot of TV commercials. But, um, so that was like, that's really you know, a, a big part of like my heart in, in entertainment. But the biggest thing was growing up next door, like right next door to Disneyland. And my mother worked for Disneyland. So I, I could go there whenever I wanted. And, you know, on Tuesday nights, they let all the employees bring their kids. So you couldn't watch old movies like Snow White and Pinocchio at that time. There was no VHS for them. They were in the vault and you had to wait every seven years they came out. But I got to watch them every Tuesday night where they showed a new one. So I saw, you know, every week it was like Fantasia, then Pinocchio, and, you know, I saw all those movies. And I, and I just wanted to be Walt Disney, you know, since uh, my dad didn't live with us. It was a single-parent household. And I just wanted to be, I wanted to be Walt. Um, and, and he left school and just said, I'm, I didn't have, you know, I'm done with this, this nonsense. When he was 16, that's when I left too. And he went to Europe and traveled during that time. So I had this sort of affinity to that. And I went to Disneyland probably in my life at this point, probably like 2000 times. And, um, and so that's, that's just what I love, you know, and I think you have to do something that you love to be really good at it. You can be really good, like, you know, like you can be virtuosic with something, but you're not ever going to be inspired good 
if you don't love it, right? Because there's there's like the uh, there there's you can you can acquire a sophistication in your work, and uh, and I'm really big into like classical music and composing classical music and 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 musicals now too. But um, sometimes when I'm composing classical music, I'll get it I'll get so much into the technical stuff of what like Beethoven was doing in the late part of his career and stuff that I'll, I'll actually forget that when I listen to the late string quartets of, of Beethoven, I think they sound like garbage, you know, and I, I will say that honestly, and there's probably intellectuals out there listening to me right now and like, Oh, he doesn't really understand them. Well, actually I do understand them. I see what he's doing with the chords and the, the progressions and everything. I think it's amazing and fascinating, but I still think it sounds like garbage, <laughs> you know? And and yeah, some of those movies that Walt made or some of those sitcoms in the 80s, they might be incredibly simple and and nothing intellectual going on there, but I love them. And so I want to make a science out of that. And maybe those are just like really simple, the, the simple proofs or the simple theorems of that science, you know, and that's what we have. But I'd rather hang out in those in that simplicity of something that I love than, than work in this other thing where, where there's all this science and, and complexity and everything. But at the end of the day, it just doesn't make me feel anything, you know. So, I mean, I could work in like, you know, uh, detective stories and, and some some crazy deep dramatic works and whatnot, you know, and, and, uh, and I could probably get into all the twists and turns of the plots and whatnot and, and have fun doing it. But I'd rather just make a story about the, you know, the reluctant little toy that wants to be a real boy or <laughs> whatever, you know, because that, that just takes me to, uh, to a place where I want to be. You hate it when people call what you do in your area of the film business, you hate the term dubbing. Could you explain the difference between dubbing and what you do with your company and your projects? When, when I explain what I do to, uh, to people, a lot of times they'll be like, Oh, you, uh, you run a dubbing company. So you take foreign movies and you dub them into English, which is, which is understandable. That's why people, I, I can see why people would think that because that's what everybody else does. But it, it irks me because that's not what I do. That's where I started. I, I, I mean, I never did just dubbing, but the way I started was I looked at what people were doing in dubbing and thought, this just seems like they're, you know, they're, 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 it's like they ordered, you know, a meal and they're only eating like just a, a little bit of it and they're leaving most of it on the plate, you know? And, and I was like, there, wait, there's, there's a lot more you could do with that. Like, it's not ready. You know, like you're, you're delivering this, this car before you put the wheels on it, before you've done it. And so I didn't have a big career at the time. You know, I was casting and working on some visual effects and whatnot. I had a lot, of, a lot of spare time. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just get one of these movies and see what's possible to do with it. And I'll just tinker with it, you know, and I just took it apart, you know, just like anybody who's interested in like mechanics or something, you know, like, like I remember uh, kids growing up, I was always lousy at working on cars, but some of my friends were, were really good at it. They just buy an old beat up car and they t the first thing they do, they just take the entire thing apart, you know, and I was, thought, I was fascinated that they had that, that level of uh, concentration. They loved cars. I never really liked cars. Um, but I 
did love movies and I took these movies apart down to the elements, man. I, I cut them up every scene, right? And if a scene can be cut in half, I'll cut that up in half. So I have like hundreds of parts, right? I take it back to like before the editing process, right? And I'm, and I, I, I'm at a disadvantage because I don't have that overlap, right? So I can't get that sweet spot of the cut between the two shots, right? Because there, that cut has already been made. So I have to find a new sweet spot to cut things. And, and usually I'll take things from like the end of a movie and put them at the beginning or stuff from the middle and put them at the end. And, um, and I'll turn a scene backwards where like um, there's a lot of things you can do in animation that you can't do in live action. So you could play a movie, you can play animation backwards very easily. You can't do that in live action. Um, I think Scorsese did that in, um, in uh, I can't remember what the, what the movie was, but he has the, pe these people walking down the street, they, but he did it by having them walk, walk backwards, and then he played the footage backwards, which made them go forward and had them kind of make, look like zombies, right? In animation, it just looks normal. So if you, have, um, if you have two characters talking and their lips are going blah, 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 you can play that in reverse and you get a whole different lip flap so I can get a completely different conversation there. And also, I don't have to go from this shot to that shot. I can go from, I can go from this shot to a different character so I can have them talking in different orders. I can also flip them horizontally. I can, I can do close-ups to use the shot twice. I can, reverse, I can reverse it and then close up and you never know that I use the same shot twice. Right, you can play it faster if I wanted to, or I can slow it down. Slowing it down is a little bit more difficult, but you can always do it a little faster. Um, so that's just the visual editing, right? And then you can come in and you you rescript the entire thing with all new jokes, new new plot lines. You rename the characters always. Sometimes I'll take a boy character and turn it into a girl. So with Snowflake the White Gorilla, there was an albino gorilla, the only one in the world. It's a boy. But I was like, I want to work with Ariana Grande. She's going to be the star of it. So she's now Snowflake. She's Snowflake now. <laughs> I mean, no one's been to the Barcelona Zoo. I mean, that I know. So they didn't know that that's, that wasn't the, the case in reality. Um, and then you can, you can bring in new music. So I had an entire new score done for Wings. Um, by a Spanish composer friend of mine. I get new songs by like Smash Mouth and Drake Bell's done a few and Jesse McCartney. And um, we do new sound effects. Sometimes the, the M&E tracks are, are kind of garbage on, on foreign films, especially the lower, product, the lower budget ones. Um, so all of these things, I don't do all of these things on, on each movie. I do just enough to, to where, you, where it works and where I'm, where I'm happy with it. Like, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of doing just enough to make it work. If, you know, I, I don't want to do more work than I need to um, just for the sake of doing it. I don't, it's not like I'm just like, I have so much fun just doing this. You know, it's, it's a very um, practical pursuit. You know, I would, I would rather go grab a beer and be done with, you know, just like the next guy. But, I, but I'll keep working on it until it gets to that that stage and if it needs a new music score if it needs to be cut you know it, you know a lot or just a little bit um then i'll you know each movie is a different case but with dubbing they don't cut anything they don't change the music they they don't even change the jokes you know and they just like they look at like here's the lip flap let's see what fits with that lip flap um and and honestly this it's like the the lowest I mean, 
I, well, I won't go, get too much into shit talking, but you know, it's some of the lowest common denominator stuff out there, you know, when, with the dubbing, you know, with lip flap, the, Oh crap, we just finished the scene. And, uh, there's, we missed a couple of lip flaps there. Oh, well just bring them back in and have them do another couple lines. But it's just like three lip flaps. Just say, hey, guys, or come on. Like in foreign film, foreign cartoons, you see like the same lines over the over and over. Um, so bef be before a sentence, where are we going now? Hey, guys, come on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And these these like garbage lines, which don't mean anything. And they're just trying to fill up the lip flap like that to me is just it's just unacceptable, you know, like how can you be so lazy to just put something that just fits? You know, it's just like, that's it. You know, like there's no, there's no reason for it to be there other than, you know, it matches the lip flap. Like that is the opposite of creativity. And so when someone says what I do is dubbing, you know, it, I can't be mad at them because I see why they, why they would think that, but it does just make me really angry <laughs> when they, when they say it. One of the things you've talked about a lot are the blurred lines between creative content and advertising, between producers and talent, and between channels, networks, and platforms. Could you explain to our audience in basic terms how job descriptions and market divisions in your world and the entertainment business are changing so with the internet and technology and everything, um, there's all these tools are here and the opportunities are here for everybody out there. And you'd think like the cream rises to the top and that and sometimes that's the case. And sometimes it's just, you know, for some other reason or whatever. But I think if you want to be a star and that, you know, eventually what's going to happen is people are going to get really, really good at all of these things, right? So an, an influencer on YouTube is going to be, you know, fantastic at special effects and fantastic at like, you know, sketch comedy and fantastic at all these other things. And there's going to be so many people out there doing it and vying for these spots. And there's going to be so much content because now like it's not just Hollywood entertainment industry. Like there's people making content in uh, some of the most popular YouTubers are in like Denmark and France. And um, so I think the, the, you know, the, the, a lot, a lot of like stars that are, that are coming up right now, they're already doing their own writing. They're already doing their own editing. They know lighting a little bit, you know, they're, they're figuring out which lenses and cameras they want to use. And I think that's just going to, that's going to be become more of the norm and, and possibly we'll, we'll get into a, a new arrangement or a new studio system where, where it won't be the norm anymore. But the next phase, you know, these kids are just going to get better and better at, at doing those things. And, um, and it, and it helps for scaling too. Like I would rather work with someone who knows how to do that stuff than someone who all they do is just, you know, come in and say a line or knows how to look pretty, you know, because if they just do one thing, then I have to hire 10 other people. I have to oversee the production. I have to do all this. And, and I can only do one at a time with that. Whereas if someone is like, you know, someone can just get it done on all those things, I can... I can make a deal with like 10 different people and have them each making a show, right? Whereas if, it, if they don't know how to do it, I can only do one show because I have to do it myself. So 
I think that is gonna gonna feed this this trend that that kids are know how to do all this stuff themselves because studio executives are are gonna see that they're gonna see that that the scaling works with one but it doesn't work with the other and and that's such an important part of um, you know establishing a, a a media brand is is scale. Could you tell us outside the United States how many foreign companies you're working with to accomplish your goals or ones that you've worked with in the past, especially in the kids entertainment world? So I started working with uh, foreign companies it was kind of a, a natural thing because like I said, when I was 16, I left high school and started, you know, traveling around Europe. I learned French, Italian, German, um, Slovak, where my father's from. Um, and, I mean, I just wherever I went, I learned the language, right? Because I wanted to, I wanted to have the full experience, and and so when I when I got into to movies, it was it was pretty uh, it was pretty easy for me to just talk to French people or talk to German people or Italian people and see what they were doing, and and it was just interesting for me, you know, and to 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 compare things. I love comparing how one industry works next to another. Like, why should the insurance industry be more like the textiles industry like whatever i like looking at processes and things that's part of my like um obsession with like taking things apart and you know look you know like the the model train builder in me you know um and so like i was always very very into like the way grammar works in different languages and like how there's uh there's singular and plural in in every language but there's like this weird case where like over five of something is a whole different case in Slovak and other Slavic languages. And in Greek, there's a different case if there's two of them. It's a, the dual case. It's like, it's just all these like different kind of like system things, you know? Um, I'm a hobbyist programmer. So like, and that, that kind of stuff, all the little rules and stuff I, I love with that. So I love like the real, the real um, low level languages like Lisp. You know, but I also love the languages which were just like kind of thrown together, you know, in in this mishmash of a way like JavaScript. It was like written by a dirty toenail, as my sixth grade teacher would have said. Um, but I love both of them. I love Lisp and I love JavaScript and they're so different from each other. Um, and uh, I started working with the foreign companies um, just trying to trying to find a place for myself where I could where I could actually be making deals and, and figuring out a, you know, a place for myself in the industry where I, where it mattered. I wasn't just, you know, getting coffee for people and whatnot. So I saw that foreign companies, their big disadvantage next to American companies in the, in the international markets, like can, I started going to can very early when I got back into, you know, behind the camera, you know, the, the business side of it. I saw that what they didn't have is the is the famous actors. It was real clear. They had posters with like people that I'd never heard of. And I was like, wow, and you're right next to this poster with Brad Pitt and, uh, you know, Meryl Streep or, you know, and this is I was like, (laughs) this is never going to sell. So what you need is these famous actors. That was my first solution. I was like, you need famous actors. So I I got involved with uh, Zentropa, which is a a company in Denmark uh, owned by Lars von Trier, one of the one of the foremost directors in Europe. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's won the Palme d'Or in Cannes like twice. And, uh, and I was like, well, you know what? I, I live in Hollywood and I can get these actors. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but 
I knew it would be easier for me in Hollywood than someone in Europe doing it. So I, I made a bunch of deals to get actors in Hollywood for, for films. And so I came back and, and I was a casting director and I had no idea how I'm going to be a, a casting director. So I was like, I could start calling agencies and I was like, this doesn't seem like the right way to do it. So what I did is I tried to find casting directors out there who already had done it and maybe needed some extra work. And I had about $100,000 worth of deals that if I delivered on, I would have money. So I just called casting directors and said, would you, I have $100,000 worth of deals. Would you like to have lunch? And maybe we could do this and I'll split the money <laughs> with you. And so see, being that casting directors are, are not the highest paid positions in Hollywood, I didn't have much trouble getting meetings with casting directors. And, and I, I actually, you know, I found one. Um, who wanted to, uh, to work with me. And uh, I, you know, she's, she's fantastic. Valerie McCaffrey, she was the head of casting for New Line Cinema. Um, she was at Universal. And, um, you know, fantastic. She, uh, she discovered Ellen Page. She cast Angelina Jolie. And it's just, and I was like, and she, she didn't know anything about foreign sales and foreign production companies. And she's like, this doesn't eat it into my business. And, you know, he's not going to be competing with me. So she's like, yeah, let's do it. So I learned how to do that. I started networking with agents and that's how I got my break into Hollywood, right? Because I didn't know anybody at the time um, in, the, in the business side of things. And it also got my break into foreign um, entertainment industry too. So that was the beginning. And then, and then I started noticing the, the animation, you know, the, anim, the animation companies around the world and seeing that they were trying to compete in a different way. And I was just like, you know, I saw that they were selling to people who were just dubbing. I was like, well, guys, you know, it could be a little bit more. And so I just gave them my pitch about how these movies didn't have to be these just cheap dubbing, you know, crap that people are doing. Um, and they could actually be something else. And I, you know, got one guy to listen to me. And he was like, yeah, well, I don't know if you can do it, but go give it a shot, you know? And, uh, and then we did one and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the best one, you know, it was the first one. Then we did another one after that and they got better and, it, and uh, you know, got eventually got good at it. Um, and so we did 14 of those, the animated films. And now we're doing TV series for super dope TV, which we're doing the crowdfunding campaign on right now at micro ventures. And, we have deals with, because there are, there are a lot of the same animation companies that I'd worked with for a long time and delivered a product that they were really happy with. And because I'd worked with so many stars with, you know, uh, Miranda Cosgrove and Hilary Duff and Ariana Grande, Josh Demel, Rob Schneider, David Spade, Russell Peters, you know, all the way across the board from, you know, all the kids entertainment stuff and lots of like the, the, uh, the, the comedians and, and evergreens and, 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 and these foreign production companies that I, they're, they're the guys I've already worked with, you know? So I was like, I'm doing a TV, I'm doing TV series. Now we're launching our own network. It's going to be like an online punk rock version of Nickelodeon. And we need family entertainment, especially animated, uh, series this time. And they're like, well, we've just been waiting for you to come to this. Cause we've, we have more animated series than we have feature films. Um, here, here you go. You know, um, they're like, we were actually waiting for you to, to do this like five years ago. Um, I was working with Lionsgate for all that time and I was just doing feature films and they were financing me for everything. So I, I wasn't able to work on series then, but, but now I am. And, uh, and, it, and they were, they, they know that I was the one who, who made these films. And, and so I was, I had, I 
plenty of success with that. And, and uh, it was just a continuing relationship because um, I'd been keeping in touch with these guys over the past 10 years. And so now we have, we're expecting to go into, uh, into deals, you know, based on our first talks with, you know, over 30 different uh, series right now. And this is, you know, over a dozen different companies from all different countries and all over the world from little tiny mom and pop animation shops to mega studios, you know, studios worth like, you know, over half a billion dollars, right? I've been keeping in touch with these people and I keep in touch with Nickelodeon um, and, and, you know, the bigger family entertainment companies here too. So I know eventually that, you know, our, our paths are going to cross. I've, I've worked with the same actors, worked with a lot of the same writers, but eventually we're going to be doing stuff together. So it's just sort of come together now that, um, you know, it's just the right time, right place, but, but they know who I am. I obviously know who they are. And now that we're ready to work on these series, um, it's just been sort of a natural, natural next step. And, uh, I would say probably, uh, with the TV series and the, and the films, we're probably working with, you know, between 20 and 30 different companies in over a dozen different countries. Um, and then, uh, you know, as far as influencers and actors, it's like well over a hundred that I keep in touch with regularly who, uh, are all just waiting to do more of this stuff. It's, it's a blast. Your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment. Um, I think my proudest moment has to be when I decided to go and do it all for myself and not make movies for the studios where they finance me like like Ungayo Kamuchosue was the one we did in Spanish and English made over 30 million dollars and I made the same amount of money on that one as I did on one that made two million dollars because I was just a hired gun when I decided to make Un Conejo de Huevos and Bunny Bravo, which are the two movies that we have on the crowdfunding campaign right now. And I figured out how to do the production. The production is 95% finished, but we're raising money for marketing and distribution. When I figured out that I, I wanted to do that and I got this, this um, VC from Silicon Valley to get behind me, a VC that was connected to Facebook and Twitter and all that. And th these guys believed in me and I made the movies and now now we're raising this money and and i'm seeing well this is working i'm doing this and there's no studio involved just that realization right there that's my proudest moment of my whole life just because i'm not beholden to any any companies anymore no people no companies um my success is my own and the awesome people who have believed in this enough to go on the journey with me the the investors who have come along and the actors who I've worked with and the other artists and uh, the people that I got the movies from overseas, obviously can't forget them. Um, but just putting all that together, biggest moment of my life. Although it's probably a kind of long moment. I can't really define the exact minute of that. Biggest disappointment in show business and how you've used it to fuel yourself to the next level. 
Biggest disappointment. Well, I mean, I got to be honest here. I guess uh, falling in love is going to be the worst thing that can happen in in show business or any business, right? I mean, that's always the down point in in movies when uh, someone has a career trajectory and something gets in the way and and they, they they forget about it and then they go through this depressed period and whatnot and then they finally come out at the end and whether they get the girl or they don't get the girl then you know that's kind of arbitrary because they're back on track right it always kind of like knocks you for a loop so i think i think the the biggest disappointment is just falling for for that while i was in hollywood again even though you know i think everybody's falling for that when they're in high school and whatnot and you think you're smarter than that when you grow up you're in your 20s or your 30s and you think that's not going to happen to me again because i'm i'm career minded and and that's it but you know you got to watch out you know there's always some there's always a mermaid ready to to sing some 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 sweet tunes to make you crash your ship last question what advice would you have for the young guy who came from nothing with a dollar and a dream in the shadows of Disneyland, trying to figure out how to get to the next level and be his own boss and do something he loves, especially in animation, and have the kind of career that you're having. Yeah, I would say uh, first do everything yourself. Don't wait for anybody to give you permission for anything, and and don't do it the the way that everybody else does it. Just look for what makes sense use your common sense to to find the 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 shortest path between a and b if you want to if you want to buy something that costs ten dollars just because everybody else goes through this specific routine to get the ten dollars and then they wait in line to buy that thing if you see a shorter way to get that then then you go that direction right um because everything in my career has been basically steps that almost nobody else takes the way i became a casting director the way i became a producer a director i'm everything no one else followed in that career i was just making it up as i as i went along and the thing is when when you do that you're you're kind of forced to to analyze the field you're playing in and and you see things that you that you wouldn't normally other otherwise see because you're you're kind of like a uh you, you know like if if you lost your house right if you lost your house you lost your car you lost everything and you were thrown in the middle of the woods you would figure out just like everybody's watched survivor you figure it out you know you you say well can i can eat these berries i can do this and you figure out the resources you need to accomplish your goal once you're taken out of this these kind of traditional systems and whatnot um and that's what i that's what I would advise. Don't go to college to learn film. Don't go to college at all because you can't learn anything unless you're learning it on your own. And I, I went to college. It was a huge waste of time. And I, everything that I value of things that I've learned were, were just when I was interested in something, I went and bought a book or I went someplace and I, I picked someone's brain about a subject that I was interested in. That's how I learned. Never learned a damn thing in school. Um, I respect a lot of my professors. I think they're great guys, if you're listening. But schools suck. I I I think everything has to be. You're only, the only things that are that are valuable that you accomplish in life. You accomplish them on your own, not by not by following someone else's program or rules. Michael Simka, 
unbelievable great time here today thank you so much what an honor this has been a very unique and enlightening show i really appreciate it. i hope your audience likes it as much as i did and our audience thanks barry okay i'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the itunes comment review section and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Hussein Ali, dated October 21st. 2017 heading from dubai it reads hey sir i was listening to your podcast and i'm still listening i'm loving it and all the short stories you start with are so inspiring your entertainment industry is huge and i am really looking forward to listening to more. Thank you. Regards, Hussein. All right, all the way from Dubai. Thank you very much. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.